Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. And as I have been telling you all week, our roast, our 11th annual roast, our annual event uh, that was unfortunately not annual in 2020 because of the pandemic is back November 22nd in New York City. Um, As I keep telling you, it ain't a cheap ticket. Uh, It is one of the great, I think nonprofit events uh, in the United States, particularly for uh, conservatives and like-minded people who love America, love Israel, love Western civilization, and want to see them defended uh, through uh, a gathering of people who support Commentary Magazine and want to have a great time, funny, lively, exciting, unexpected, off-the-record, uh, good-natured ribbing of 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 the roasties who have included over time Charles Krauthammer, Dick Cheney, Joe Lieberman, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Dan Senor, Bill Crystal, Norman Podhoritz, Midge Dector, Roger Hertog, and this year's roastie, Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik, uh, our columnist, um, perhaps the leading Orthodox rabbi in the United States, though he is only 43 years old. A PhD from Princeton, an academic at Yeshiva University, um, knows more about everything on earth uh, than you do and also knows The Simpsons, uh, how how he knows uh, 700 episodes of The Simpsons. I don't really understand, but he does nonetheless and is a delightful, funny guy, and we will be teasing him within an inch of his life. So go to commentary.org slash roast21 or email us at roast at commentary.org for information on how you can purchase tickets or tables for this event. Uh, Cocktails at 6, dinner at 7, you're out of there by 9.15 and you will be so happy to join us on November 22nd. So that is our roast of Sully Soloveitchik. With me, as always, and present at the roast, and we will be doing some kind of event at the roast relating to the podcast, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. I'm hoping for a musical number, by the way, but I haven't gotten clearance on that. Okay, well, Abe, Abe, Abe will choreograph it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. No, of course, a star as as I was of High School Musical. So you know, who knows? We could Abe, Abe, Noah, and I could all do Fugue for Tin Horns from Guys and Dolls while Christine does Adelaide's Lament. It could be. You <laughs> just don't know what's gonna happen at the commentary roast. You I know don't that's know not what's gonna happen. Gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, of all things, it could that happen. One you could probably cross out. <clears throat> If you want some sense of what goes on at the Commentary Roast, go to YouTube and Google Dick Cheney behind the music. That's all I'm going to tell you. Dick Cheney behind the music. And uh, you'll get some sense of some of the kinds of things that happen at the Commentary Roast. Guys, uh, we have a poll out from Quinnipiac about America and the Biden administration, and Joe Biden, and the Democrats, and the Republicans. And to call this poll catastrophic for Joe Biden would be to do him a favor. Um, It shows him 
with a 38% approval rating versus a 53% uh, disapproval rating. Uh, in his, that is a decline, that is an eight-point shift against him uh, in, as regards to the previous Quinnipiac poll three weeks ago. And um, I, it, it's really bad. Uh, independents now disapprove of Biden 60 to 32. It was, of course, his performance with independents that, that won him the presidency. Um, th- those numbers are catastrophic, and they're catastrophic as we go down, systematically down the range of issues on whether on which, on which people approve or disapprove of him. The economy, 39.55. Commander in chief, excuse me. <clears throat> Commander in chief, thirty-seven fifty-eight. Taxes, thirty-seven fifty-four. Foreign policy, thirty-four fifty-eight. Immigration, twenty-five sixty-seven. And the situation at the Mexican border, parallelly closely with immigration, twenty-three sixty-seven. Uh, only forty-four percent of Americans say he's honest. Fifty percent say he's not. Uh, that compares to 51% saying that he was honest in April. Good leadership skills, 41.56 compared to 52.44 in April. And more than half of Americans, 55 to 42%, say that the Biden administration is not competent in running the government. All this comes against the backdrop of the of the mess of the last week, week and a half, in which the Democrats were unable to settle on how to handle infrastructure and the big budget bill that they want, uh, and the coming uh, the 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 coming crisis in relation to the U.S. debt and the debt ceiling, which now has apparently been resolved in a way that we'll discuss who benefits and who doesn't. <clears throat> okay, so that, that is that's the backdrop. Noah. Yeah, this poll had two really surprising. I mean, in so far as the all everything you just listed wasn't surprising, it is surprising, but had two really surprising findings from my perspective. Um, first, on those set of issues, uh, on immigration and the border crisis, respectively, if I if I recall correctly, Biden had received his lowest marks. Fewer than thirty percent of Americans approved of his performance. There, closer to twenty percent. Um, on those issues. And you don't get that low without losing a whole lot of Democrats. Now, in the Quinnipiac poll is not Rasmussen. It's, it has a slightly Democratic House effect, uh, which makes this all the worse for, for Joe Biden. But you go down into the crosstabs and you see that uh, on these two respective issues, um, roughly half of Democrats, 50 and 51 percent, I think, approved of Joe Biden's performance on both the border and immigration, respectively. Um suggesting that fully half of self-identified Democrats do not approve of Joe Biden for one reason or another. Um, and you can say, well, maybe they like they don't like the humanitarian concerns or separating families, which is a legal requirement that this presidency has pursued just as the last one did, maybe. But you could also see some likely some immigration restrictionism there on the Democratic Party side that is just not reflected at all in any of the venues that purport to serve this demographic. Center-left media does not advance that particular viewpoint at all. But you can see the perfect storm that uh, immigration and the border represent for Biden precisely in, in, in the, possi- the possibility that everything that he is doing or hasn't been doing offends Republicans and independents. 
and what he has been doing may offend some Democrats as well as what he hasn't been doing. So um, the one ballast and bolster he has in all this polling is his support from his own party. If he's 50-50 on his party, that means some of them are restrictionist and some of them think that he's being a monster and that it's just Hitler too all over again. And you can see how making moves in any direction on the basis of his own party support could be injurious to him. That's one of the reasons that they might be this paralyzed. But there's two, uh, and there are two other uh, things to keep in mind here too, with regard particularly to how Democrats view his handling of the border. One is that he initially punted the issue to his vice president. He gave Kamala Harris this as part of her portfolio, although she very quickly and probably uh, it was a savvy move to be like, well, I'm not actually going to go to the border. There's a crisis. I'm going to look at root causes and go to the countries where these people are coming from. And that was an unsatisfactory response to the crisis because it was a crisis. This wasn't just, oh, what are we going to do in the future about the border? It was current crisis. And she kind of he punted it to her and she avoided it as well. So there's that, which I think did dis- disappoint a lot of Democrats on the competence issue. But to the lying point, I think there are plenty of Democrats who didn't appreciate the president of the United States lying about his own border patrol officers and having the media pick up that story and run with it and having him claim he's going to punish people who were doing their jobs amidst a crisis that he has so far issued no solutions for. So that, I think, I, I think he probably lost a lot of support among his own party for that, too. He was supposed to be kinder and gentler than Trump. Yes, we know. But competence the competence and the lying uh, parts of this polling were really interesting to me to see how far he's fallen in terms of the American public's view of those two things. And I th- there's another aspect related to this too, which is um, his the the general um, PR approach he takes to it, or the you know no cameras over the bridge where there are uh, uh, where all the Haitians were. Um, the whole message of don't cover the story. <clears throat> sort of ex- explicitly um, articulated by the administration. Don't cover the, the, the border right now. We're going to fix it, and then we'll let you cover it, um, which which no one, that's not even a partisan thing. Absolutely no one wants to hear that from the president. The danger of immigration becoming a populist issue is a danger that is posed almost exclusively to Democrats and liberal Democrats, because when I speak here as an immigration dove myself, their view, the view of the, uh, of the totally dovish, totally, you know, defund ICE, cancel ICE, you know, don't let everybody in, don't stop everybody is incoherent at best and violative of U.S. law at worst. And, and, it's not really defensible unless you are an activist who accepts all kinds of preceding theories about the United States, about borders, about sovereignty, about all kinds of things that are very much a matter of extremely elite opinion uh, or extreme activist opinion and are really not shared by hardly anybody, what people are like, as far as I can tell, and where the right is always wrong on this, is that people are sympathetic both to immigrants and to the idea that people who want to come to the United States for a better life for themselves will at net make the country better and not worse. That polling has suggested consistently throughout 
the rise of the anti-immigration right over the last 25 years. Those numbers have not changed. In fact, they may have gotten a little better. People are sympathetic to immigration. They are not sympathetic, and I'm, this is Democrats as well as Republicans as well as independents, to to law-breaking and, the, and, and ignoring, avoiding, or outright supporting the breaking of the law in a way, by the way, that, that, that harms legal immigration, legal immigrants, and caused that, that elision between legal and, and illegal immigration caused great harm to the cause of immigration over the last three or four years because it gave Trump the excuse to limit legal immigration in astonishing numbers. And where is the Democratic position eroding fastest? It's not in the upper Midwest among working class whites. It's in border counties. It's in tech along in Texas along the Rio Grande among Hispanic Hispanic voters. Uh, it's just their Democratic support is collapsing at a rate that is surprising even poll watchers. People like Dave Wasserman. Um, uh, I don't even remember where he's. I think it's NBC News now. Um, are forecasting an utter implosion of the Democratic position in otherwise solidly blue counties, with the odd exception of New Mexico, um, but solidly blue counties along the border. There's also a weirdly contradictory messaging about crisis going on within the administration here, because if we still are in the midst of a pandemic crisis, a COVID crisis that requires, you know, mandates for vaccination and continued mask wearing, which is what the administration is is claiming, they're not speaking to the the COVID crisis at the border at all. In fact, they try to avoid those questions. They did have to acknowledge that they weren't actually testing a lot of the people who were coming into the country. And so there's, again, like I think that the American people look at this and say, this doesn't make sense to me. If the, if these are twin crises and we're in the middle of a pandemic and they tell us not to worry about all these people coming across the border and they're not even testing them, they're not even enforcing, making sure they're coming to their appointments uh, before judges to, to apply for uh, legal status then how are we to believe the messaging on why why are we being punished with all these mandates when they can't even enforce the basic law at the border you know hey we talk about law and order and you know is law and order a republican issue it always was it was for 50 years and then democrats always say things like that it was just a code for racism but there's a commonsensical aspect here that is a, i think a huge problem for liberals and democrats and always has been which is most people obey the law. Almost everybody obeys the law. When they don't, they do it they do it in kind of very vague ways, you know. They speed, you know, or they have one too many drinks and drive if they do something like that or they smoke pot or so you know whatever. They 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 break the law but they do so in a way that they know is probably not all that injurious to other people and that is something that a lot of other people are doing and it just it's not the same thing but when you get to something like are people allowed, crossing the border and then they come into the country and they don't have a right to be here and they are therefore going to do whatever it is that they're going to do and I, I just i follow the rules 95% in my own life and there is this weird category of people that for whom we are supposed to accept that the rules are being suspended and they're not taxpayers and they weren't born here and they're not our people. And this is wrong. It's not fair. It's a little like the thing that sourced the Tea Party in 2009, which was that 8% of Americans were not paying their mortgages because the financial crisis had hit them so hard. 
and liberals started floating the idea that people's mortgage payments should be suspended. And Rick Santelli went on CNBC and said, 92% of everybody who has a mortgage in this country is paying their mortgage, and we are going to upend eight centuries of common law contract thinking in order to service them rather than be you know, representatives of the 92% of people who follow through on their obligations. This is not right. And I think Democrats constantly miss a bet when they embrace the idea that things in this country are unjust or not fair or something like that, and that the way to handle that is to privilege those who are violating the social compact rather than do what they can to extend the social compact to everyone in some fashion. Well, this is why Christine's point about um, COVID is is so uh, on target, because so the the sense of uh, permissiveness or the sort of the, the lax approach to um, uh, migrants at the border uh, from, from Democrats is coming at a, at a time not only when the, everyone in the country is is being told to um, take on all sorts of new onerous responsibilities having to do with COVID and being you know. Uh, having to do with mandates and and uh, and behavior uh, in terms of the pandemic, but this also comes amid um, sort of larger liberal campaign to police everyone for everything, right? Um, for your behavior, for your speech, for what you do, where you go, what you buy, who you, buy. and then at the same time they're like, just let just drop down to the you know end all enforcement at the at the borders. It's just you know let, let people come in and and don't. And and by God, don't let police police at all, either at the borders or in cities or doing, you know. So the the paradox is is absolutely too huge to ignore. Even if you don't uh, sort of see it on a conscious level, you feel it because all you get from the same sources are I can't do anything and they want uh, people coming into a, a, the, the country illegally to be able to do to do anything. So the larger liberal leftist idea is that the is that the disaster, the moral disaster facing a country is inequity. However, you want to slice it, find it income inequity. Uh, you know, law laws being improperly, you know, or people being punished in an in in an inequitable fashion. However, you want to slice it, and that's inequity. And people who sort of take a stand against inequity or oppose it or are representatives of it uh, are people for whom we are supposed to have sympathy. And that's an interesting, uh, let's say, uh, how would you abstracting of the fact that most people don't experience life like this. It's not like, how come I pay my taxes? And Rockefeller doesn't pay his taxes. It's more like I pay my taxes, my nephew pays his taxes, my neighbor pays his taxes, so-and-so pays his taxes, and so this guy over here, you know, is somehow getting off scot-free. First of all, you know, Rockefeller does pay his taxes, uh, and they sort of understand that. They may think maybe Rockefeller should pay more in his taxes, but they're very great at abstracting injustice. But an injustice is when laws are impro- when the laws that are on the books are are enforced inequitably, right? It's not 
Trump got away with these with saying in the course of his presidency and his presidential campaign that he was smart to use the existing tax laws not to pay taxes or to do well, he never admitted what it was that he did or didn't do with his taxes but that's smart because that's the law and he obeyed the law he obeyed the law and he hired people who figured out how to obey the law while paying the least in taxes that's fair what's not right is that people violate the law and break the law and get away with it and that i think is what people cannot abide and what democrats have lost the string on or lost the thread on about ordinary people hearing the news and seeing things on the news they see people under a bridge and they're too you know it's a rorschach test do you look at that and say oh those poor people let them in or do you say what are they doing in texas under a bridge they're not supposed to be here they didn't get here in a legal way but the but the argument that they make now which is about the reason the equity argument is the one you hear more often than not from democrats is because the real answer to that question is neither it it can be both it can be what are they doing here i feel really bad for them but the only solution is to if you don't like the existing law is to change it and they have not been able I don't. Is there an immigration bill before Congress right now that the Democrats are pushing to abolish ICE? No, it's easier to say ICE is cruel. They're mean to people. We should just be nice to people. There's no such thing as an illegal human. You've seen all the signs on people's uh, you know, front lawns. So it's easier to make the emotional appeal while doing nothing as policymakers. Um, and, and I think more and more Americans are looking at that and going, well, yeah, we feel bad. What are you going to do about it? And their answer is, we're just going to keep telling you that you should feel bad for these people and that anyone who wants to enforce the law is evil. You know, there's this uh, big report out, uh, this um, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists released this, the Pandora Project. Right, which is a discovery of all kinds of financial information involving the super wealthy in countries around the world. One of the details in this, not to sort of continue harping on this point, but uh, involves uh, how many uh, foundations and trusts and things exist in South Dakota. Because South Dakota changed a lot of its laws in the early 80s in order to attract credit card companies. One of the reasons that, you know, whenever you send a check to your credit card company, you, this is less the case than it was then. But for decades, you know, when you sent your your monthly payment to your credit card company, it went to an address in South Dakota. It's like, why? That's weird, right? You know, why is that? Well, South Dakota changed its laws in order to attract a certain type of company. And as a result, brilliant tax professionals who study uh, study the discrepancies in state law and all of that figured out that there was a certain kind of shelter you could create in South Dakota you couldn't create anywhere else and it's a trustee system and this I, I who who even understands it and the story publishes this and sort of lets it be known that this is going on that this is a way that people are avoiding paying state taxes or paying certain kinds of taxes and then, you know, seven paragraphs down in the story, it says, well, this is, of course, legal. It's totally legal what's going on here, but this just means that rich people aren't paying the same kind of taxes on their inheritances or what that they might pay otherwise if South Dakota didn't have these rules. 
But South Dakota does have these rules, and it has these rules precisely to encourage and engender the kind of business that these banks relied on, just as Delaware has all kinds of weird rules that mean that ships are all registered in Delaware. Um, or, you know, other kinds of credit card companies and banks are registered in Delaware. That's and how trust. The they have a lot of trust, trust there, right. too. Yeah. That's how the federal system works. Different states engage in different policies in order to attract different kinds of business. And it looks illegal to people who believe that the tax rate should be 100%. But if you don't believe the tax rate should be 100%, it's all... But, you know, this is something that the nation and the New Republic and other publications like that and 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 and, and Piketty and uh, Paul Krugman will yell about for the next 40 or 50 years. But that is not what illegality means to most people. It is not what crime and illegality and the things that we need to be protected against if we are to have a functioning civil society in which we all feel safe and in which we all feel that basically things are being applied, you know, uh, impersonally across the board. That just isn't, that just isn't what they mean by it. And, and, and they keep making this mistake over and over again. I mean, they're, they're, they're walking down a road in which, as I keep saying, they are handing Republicans the very issue that Republicans used to change the entire political dynamic in the United States away from it being an effectively democratic country into it becoming a conservative country, which is both in foreign policy and a domestic policy, the idea of we're bad, the government, the system is bad, uh, the problem with crime is is the mindset of the people who commit the crimes and not the crimes that are being committed and the victims who are created from it. And in the world, we need to coddle the people who are creating the disorder and and be nice to them and hope that they'll leave us alone rather than confront and, and contain them. And that is how the Republican Party grew from being a party where there were two, twice as many Democrats as Republicans to pretty much parity today. And it is going that way right again, as this poll, this Quinnipiac poll would seem to demonstrate. They are. Well, we should get, we should get to yeah. the foreign policy elements of it. I don't okay. Know before we do that, before we do that, let's talk about made in love this advertiser uh, because made in uh, produces professional quality cookware for those who love to cook. And they follow the precepts of like your favorite restaurant because how does how does it make such consistently delicious food? They have the access to the right kitchen tools, and Maiden gives you that access as well with professional quality cookware and kitchenware, which makes it possible for anyone to make restaurant quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. So this kitchenware brand works with those chefs and artisans to produce some of the world's best pots, pans, and wine glasses. They source the finest materials, partner with these renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made-in products are made to last. They offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop into the oven. 40,000 five-star reviews, products used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world, better cookware for better meals. That's Made In. And right now, Made In is offering our listeners 
15% off your first order with promo code commentary. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Maiden products. So go to maidencookware.com slash commentary. That's M-A-D-E-I-N-C-O-O-K-W-A-R-E.com slash commentary and use promo code commentary for 15% off your first order. Maidencookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code commentary. Noah, let's talk foreign policy. Yeah, so the other shocking finding to me, not shocking, but um, surprising in a good way, uh, finding from this uh, Quinnipiac poll was uh, on Afghanistan and um, asked uh, asked respondents about, quote, forever wars, um, whether they support ending those forever wars and uh, what, however they're described. And it found that um, 28% uh, thought that Joe Biden handled Afghanistan correctly, that he did the quote, the right thing. 65% also said that some or all of the U S uh, military footprint in Afghanistan should have remained behind. Now that's going to be a shocking finding only for people in my view, who haven't been following the issue closely, who think that American public opinion is, uh, you know, frozen in Amber from 2014, but events changed dramatically over the course of the second half of the last decade in Afghanistan to achieve a, as we've discussed numerous times on this podcast, a sustainable, unhappy, but nevertheless um, uh, acceptable status quo that was something of a stalemate. And the result in the part of the American public was not support for the conflict per se, but apathy. Um, In late May, I wrote a post for the blog, for Commentary's blog side, entitled, Are Americans in the Mood for a Humiliating Defeat? Now, the intuitive answer to that is no, and that's the answer that I leaned into. But uh, along the way, uh, encountered this analysis by Brookings Institution researchers Medea Afzal and Isra Saber, who did a commendable analysis of the, albeit scarce, polling around the issue. The fact that there was scarce polling around the issue also suggests that a sense of apathy and acceptance of the conflict had settled in over the American public. But they found that in uh, October 2019, one poll, YouGov poll, found that a fifth of respondents, full 20%, just didn't even answer questions about troop levels. They just didn't respond. Uh, Another one in 2019, another survey, uh, found that Americans backed a, quote, rapid and orderly withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan to the tune of just 34%. There's a lot of non-response in these polls and a general lack of enthusiasm for the kind of policy that Joe Biden pursued that was uh, available to anybody willing to see the evidence well before anyone engaged in the kind of withdrawal that both Donald Trump and Joe Biden pursued in Afghanistan with imprudent alacrity towards the end of 2020 and into 2021. And All you have to do is to have a sort of basic understanding of the American political dynamic to know that the public doesn't really care about foreign policy up and until one of two things happens. Americans start dying abroad or the nation is dealt a humiliating, disgraceful defeat. Um, The public doesn't like that sort of thing. And Democrats somehow convinced themselves that the public was so hostile to this conflict that they wouldn't care how it ended, even if it was really messy even if it was injurious to the national soul, um, something that Joe Biden likes to talk a lot about. And they pursued this with really imprudent policy. And now they're going to be surprised to find that the public doesn't like it. 
when all of this, in my view, was pretty predictable. To, to that point, I think um, at least a significant part of the the large number in the recent poll who say they would support um, some troop presence, some continued U.S. troop presence in Afghanistan, I think has to do with the fact that it has happened and has gone so poorly. Um, people are somewhat shameless about, you know, stating, you know, um, sort of putting their opinion on the record as if it was the one they always had um, in light right. of changing events. Um, you know, ha- had had by some miracle the withdrawal gone smoothly <clears throat> uh, and perfectly, um, I think the number would look different. But it does, possibly, and you're probably right. Um, but it dovetails with what we were talking about in the first segment, uh, insofar as Democrats are making the conservative case for them, uh, which is sort of always the case that happens when you have a united government and they sort of stumble and their critics are, are retroactively justified. But in this case, I mean, literally justifying in the minds of American voters a permanent presence in Central Asia was so anathema to just about everybody who writes and talks about politics for a living that it has to come as something of a shock. They've internalized this idea that nobody likes um, America's presence abroad, even though they define that so narrowly as to exclude just about everywhere that Americans actually are. Um, But they're really only talking about Central Asia and Iraq. Um, But this is making the case for America's quote unquote forever wars, permanent presences abroad that are advisory commitments to friendly governments in support of U.S. interests there so that we don't they don't become larger problems that we have to deal with here. That's the argument. And it is being validated in real time by its opponents. Um, You know, I, I think Abe has the point right, which is that Biden had a had an argument that this is a this is a. A two-part argument he was making, one of which is that we our, our presence there is not sustainable over time because to continue being there, we would have had to ratchet up troop levels uh, because a deal had been made and we weren't getting attacked. I mean, I don't remember whatever the nonsense was that Biden was peddling about how we would have had to commit tens of thousands of more troops there to do something uh, differently or simply to maintain the well, status Well, okay, goal. I do. And we should be accurate about this because several uh, organizations, groups, uh, there was a con- congressional committee to this effect and members of the administration all recommended something to the tune of 4,500 troops augmenting from our presence of 2,500 okay. at the beginning of the year. Right. And Joe Biden said, I'm not going to do that. I want to get down to 7,000. Ultimately, he had to in- increase troop presence to 6,000 when he found out he couldn't hold the airport. So even he backed off his own position. Okay. But in any case, so so that was, that, was, that was one part. And the second part was, you know, we got to get out. So we're going to get out and, um, and everybody's going to like that we got out. Well, people would have liked that we got out, if we got out, there were no consequences. So would we. I mean, so, you know, unless you're, unless you're so eager to win the argument that you're not going to say all things being equal, maybe we shouldn't have troops in Afghanistan. So if we pull out and, you know, the government doesn't fall and they make some kind of a deal with the Taliban where they all settle in and everything suddenly becomes a kind of um, peaceable concord uh, there, yeah, then he would have reaped all the benefits of having done something, you know, visionary that his own people 
advised against and that people have been talking about for 20 years but he did he that didn't happen what happened was that people who said don't do this because you're going to pull you're pulling out the the cork and you know uh brackish and poisonous liquids are going to pour in that are going to create a horrible situation so you know he would have benefited from the upside if there had been an upside the 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 weird part of this was the white houses and the democrats blind insistence that he would benefit even if there were a downside i mean that's or or as the downside was going on they were saying nobody is going to care about this but you know the funny part is unless the story changes the overhang is the last thing that anybody thought about afghanistan was oh my god that was terrible it's not like they're going the thing that they're going to remember or flash back to if they don't think about it for 6 or 8 months and somebody starts talking about it in 2022 is well i guess that went fine because all they'll remember is the chaos they're, well they'll also remember and i think this this applies to a lot of the messaging that the administration has bizarrely chosen to embrace which is this it's we're doing this all for your own good. There's a kind of a weird technocratic soothsaying tone they take when they when they make these decisions. And it's, you know, we were we were leaving Afghanistan. I remember how defensive and kind of uh, shocked Biden seemed that people were unhappy. The, the very fact that he had to come and speak to the public about this seemed to surprise him. And it was like, this, this is what we need to do. I've been saying this is what we need to do. It's all for your own good. The same way he you know, kind of has rolled out various COVID mandates and, and claims. And I think up to a point when things go well, Americans don't mind being told what's best for them at a certain level. But when public officials who've botched, you know, several different uh, major aspects of public policy and foreign policy come before the American people and say, we've got more that we're going to do for your own good, that mistrust is what I think we're seeing in this recent poll and we'll continue to see. Now, I, I totally believe that Republicans can snatch defeat from the jaws of this PR victory that 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 they have in front of them right now and, and likely will. And certainly if Trump reenters presidential contender race, that'll be destroyed. But there's the condescension that I think a lot of Americans are getting from over and over again on various policy choices and messaging from the Biden administration shouldn't be uh, discounted here because people don't like to be talked down to. And Mr. Lunchpail Joe has weirdly adopted some of that tone in a lot of his larger public policy undertakings. I mean, this is the question. Is it, is it Mr. Lunchpail Joe isn't really a Lunchpail Joe, but is actually an elitist? Or, and I really want to say this in, the, in, in a sort of flat way, because I'm going to use an extremely judgmental and ugly word, but I want to say it in a flat way to have a serious debate. Or, as I've said three or four times, or is he an idiot? And what I mean by that is he has now been president for, you know, almost nine months and his judgment is very bad about what things are going to happen that are going to be good for him or bad for him or good for the country or bad for the country. And at some point we accept the contention that people who win the presidency or people, politicians who have, have a greater understanding of what the public is, what the public wants in very broad brush terms. And, and you know, we're just sitting here on the sidelines kibitzing. He's the man in the arena. He's the one who has to, you know, the buck stops with him. Every presidential cliche you can come up with. 
And so we should give him the benefit of the doubt that his feel or his people's feel for where the country is at any given moment is probably better than ours. And I think we can now pretty conclusively say that that is not true. But does that, I mean, I'm just going to go into the, the, you opened the door. Is he an idiot or a fool? Um, There's a difference in that when you think of idiot, you know, was the, the, the old term for, you know, a a certain degree of cognitive deficiency, you know, it was, it was actually described a, a, you know, a a certain IQ level. Um, I don't, I don't think he's necessarily an idiot um, in, in those terms. He's quite foolish um, uh, in, in the sense that he's, despite whatever his, you know, his cognitive capabilities, and I'm not talking about his age, but despite the fact that he's he may be sufficiently intelligent. In fact, probably is. Um, he still can't stop getting in his own way um, and making uh, poor decisions. But I, I also think it's it, it, something that that has affected him. You know, I said this before: is he's he's proved himself to be a very unlikable fool um, and 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 a quite dishonest one. Um, and there are likable uh, idiots, uh, or at least the ones that you that you feel are being straight with you. Um, and I think it's his lack of being straight with us as well as talking down to us. And just just to I just want to bring up one example because I don't want to because we were on Afghanistan and I should have brought it up then. But a, a piece of news came up yesterday um, from CNN where a bunch of uh, U.S. defense officials have said that the the suicide bomber who killed uh, 13 U.S. Uh, servicemen at the, at the Bagram airport, along with dozens of Afghans, um, was, was a, a member of ISIS as they would say now, ISIS-K, um, who was released from the prison at, at Bagram Airport, the prison that the, that US had, the U.S. had been in charge of. But when, when, when the airport security was handed over to the Taliban, the Taliban released this ISIS member who then perpetrated the suicide attack on the airport. Um, this brings up several things. Uh, among them, of course, just the, the general incompetence with which we went about uh, drawing down there. But also, and this is in regards to this, this gets to the point of how the Biden administration talks to the American people. Um, this whole ridiculous notion that the Taliban and ISIS-K are these mortal enemies Um so and that we should be happy about that in some sense, because in some way this puts the Taliban on our side, you see, because we because we have this common enemy in ISIS K. The Taliban released this this ISIS member from the prison. I want to say that's even worse than that, uh, in part because the administration strategy tacitly concedes that our project in Afghanistan is to engineer a civil war, is to uh, incentivize domestic uh, warfare and sacrifice all the Afghan citizens who are going to be caught in the crossfire so that the Taliban is, and their Al-Qaeda allies are so tied up with, with ISIS that they, they don't have the capacity and the wherewithal to threaten Europe or the United States, which is as morally bankrupt a, a policy as you can get. And it's only cold comfort that it's not succeeding. Briefly, though, I really love your fool analogy because he's he's, Joe Biden is a fool in the classic Russian literary sense. And he's 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 a he's a fool who ushers in world historic events, That's who right. presages the the plot line advancing, 
uh, in a way in a way that he just sort of stumbles into um, what end up becoming these central pivot points in whatever the story and the narrative is, and like a Turgenev sort of Zamyatin sort of literary idea of the Russian fool. I love that analogy. Or Dostoevsky's idiot. There you go. Uh, oh no! Oh no! <laughs> Dostoevsky's no, idiot no, is a different. holy man. Uh, <laughs> I know different. Different. The holy fool. I mean, that's no, but no, but he. But, kind of but, right, we're going but, right back yeah. to undergrad here. As yeah, I recall yeah, it. but the yeah, but the Dostoevsky's idiot is a is a is a great old person. So I, I'm right. not I'm not going down that road. But um, I, I do think <laughs> that it's important. The reason I said idiot and not fool, though I think fool is a perfectly acceptable, and maybe maybe these are you know this is a semantic difference. Is he's not very smart? That's what I'm saying, and I I want to sort of think about this because, of course, it has been a line of democratic thinking about Republican presidents that they're dumb, right? Ford tripped, and Reagan was a movie star who was stupid, and Bush couldn't put a sentence together, and all of this, and you should be as dumb as Reagan and Bush. You know, you should, in your entire life, that whole line about Bush was so astonishingly factitious in in, in any case. Um, as uh, as David Frum once said, the thing about Bush is that he stumbled over his, over his words sometimes because his brain was moving too fast. It was moving faster than his tongue. That was his experience of Bush. It doesn't matter. This was a this is a line, a self-justifying line. It went back to Eisenhower. The idea was Eisenhower, the man who had run World War II, was dumber than Adlai Stevenson, who was a buffoon, in fact, was a was a pretentious buffoon. And Eisenhower was a man who would not only run World War II, but had been the president of Columbia University, but because he ran as a Republican and not a Democrat, which he could easily have done, this line developed that he was stupid. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Uh, Coolidge, too, by the way, a man who translated things into Latin to relax. Coolidge translated English poetry into Latin so that he could relax. So this is a century-old trope about Republicans and 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 being dumb and Democrats, you know, uh, sort of comforting themselves with the idea that you know their leaders are are all robotic geniuses. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy won a Pulitzer for a book he didn't write uh, that uh, Ted Sorensen wrote, so that was good. You know, because he won a Pulitzer before he became president, and of course Barack Obama, you know, was a robot and all this. It's all this. Democrats are great. And uh, I'm sorry, but Joe Biden is an idiot. He doesn't understand the consequences of his actions. He has systematically over the course of his political career advocated for policies that we have seen time and again. Not that that you can't advocate for bad policies and be an intelligent and brilliant person. You can. But he advocates for policies that are on, on the face of them often really stupid. And one the ones that aren't stupid like a lot of the measures that he assembled for the crime bill, he then disavows later on when it's convenient for him to do so. And I genuinely think that it did not occur to him that what happened in Afghanistan was going to happen, that it did not occur to him that um, when he said, I, you know, a lot of the policies that were enacted as part of the COVID relief bill and various other things, that they might have unanticipated consequences That's something that a person of elementary intelligence who is like in his 70s, who has seen a lot go on in the world, could say, you know, maybe if we pay people too much unemployment insurance, they're not going to go back to work. That didn't occur to him. The eviction moratoriums problems didn't occur to him. And Afghanistan and the the fact that Afghanistan was going to turn, 
you know, into a goat rodeo didn't occur to him. And I just think that we need to take account of the fact that we have a president who really isn't very smart. And there are going to be consequences from this throughout this presidency. And I, you know, I, I don't really know what they are. And, you know, maybe again, a holy idiot is better than a, than a you know brilliant evil person or something like that. Um, but, uh, you know, that th- this is just not, uh, he is not showing an impressive set of skills as president. Let's just put it that way. The policies he's enacting and then the things that he tries to enact that don't go right. Um, including like, I have an idea. Let's put Kamala Harris, who's never done anything, doesn't know anything, and was the worst presidential candidate of the last 20 years. A, let's make her our vice president. B, let's put her in charge of stuff. Like, put her in charge of what? She hasn't done anything about anything ever except, except- have this huge opening that she made for herself as a presidential candidate and then close it up. Well, Two now she has crisis. Later. She has crisis management. She has hired crisis management now, so she's she's really you know she's out there doing stuff. So that might prove to be smarter in the long run as insurance. You know, look who's coming up behind me. Well, you know, you you and I have a, you you and I have a difference of opinion on 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 that question anyway. But um, anyway, I just think that it's that we 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 will we will underestimate the degree to which a lot of this presidency is going to be managing the fact that we have a president who is who is um, uh, intellectually not up to the job and may be the first president who is, in fact, intellectually not up to the job that we've seen, uh, certainly in my in my 60 years. So I'm sorry, me, I have to just dog the yes. vice president. One Because I was just talking to, to someone who's outside the Beltway about this. Part of the who voted for Biden and Harris and loved the idea of a co-presidency type thing when the vice president who's been deployed to handle multiple crises herself has to hire a crisis intervention, we hired her. We, the country hired her to handle crises, and now we're paying for her to have her own management. That was what the friend said to me, and that was a real shift as a very liberal friend. I was like, hmm, didn't think of it that there way. There you go. So, uh, you know, it's enough to make your backache. So if you have a backache, or even if you don't have a backache, but you want to have a comfortable back, Let's talk about the X chair. I never look forward to sitting in my office chair until I got my X chair. And you know why it's that LMX t- massage and temperature regulation? Because can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? I bet it can't, but my X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can't. Yours can't. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. I'm talking high performance. I'm talking quality engineering. I'm talking extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love an X chair. You can't wait to be at work when you're in your X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how better your chair can be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair. Commentary.com or call one 844 for X chair for $100 off your order. X chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. I want to go back um, to something we talked about a couple of days ago, which is this question of when, when crime comes you know, close to you. Um, there is a remarkable story this morning in the New York Post. I just need to pull up here. Um, sorry, just give me a second. 
about I, I mentioned that sitting in my office uh right literally above literally below me my building sits atop our office building sits atop the Times Square subway station and atop the uh platform for the uptown number one train and on that platform a woman pushed another woman uh into an oncoming express train and uh in an astonishingly happenstance way, did not kill her. She broke her jaw and had some facial injuries, but but survived it. The New York Post has a follow-up story this morning by Rebecca Rosenberg, uh, Gabrielle Fonrouge, Tina Moore, and Bruce Golding. And I just want to read some of it too. A mentally ill woman busted in an unprovoked attempted murder at the Times Square subway station was locked up on $100,000 bail Wednesday as a group of politicians demanded that prosecutors completely stop seeking bail to ease conditions at Rikers Island, which is the New York City jail. Accused subway shover Antonia Aguibara was free to allegedly terrorize morning rush hour strap hangers on Monday after getting released without bail in a July 5th assault in Harlem that left the victim with injuries that included a black eye, broken nose, and knocked out tooth. Agigbara, 29, is charged in that case with third-degree assault, a misdemeanor that's among the many crimes for which judges can no longer impose bail under a controversial 2020 reform law that a handful of politicians would like to see broadened. Uh, Agigbara, who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia, has a history of assault arrests and complaints about being an emotionally disturbed woman that date to 2010. One of those calls came just two days after the Harlem assault when she began arguing with staffers at a homeless shelter in Far Rockaway, Queens. That incident led to a psychiatric evaluation, as did another in July 2020 when cops found her throwing items out of an apartment window in the Bronx and screaming at passersby. She is charged with attempted second-degree murder for allegedly pushing Lenny Javier, 42, against the side of a number three train. Egegbara has been out in, in and out of an institution for most of her life, her older sister, Dedria Gregg, told The Post. The city has failed her, Gregg said. They took her off the medication because she says that she doesn't have mental issues, which is clearly not the truth. They always let her go, and she always attacks somebody. Uh, meanwhile, City Councilman Brad Lander, the Democratic nominee for controller, for city controller, and 13 state legislators were among those who called on all five of the city's district attorneys, quote, to immediately stop requesting bail in all cases. They said the move would, quote, ensure that not a single additional person is held in the inhumane conditions at Rikers, which has been marked by chaos and violence recently amid what the Correction Officers Union has described as a dangerous staffing shortage. Quote, every time your assistant district attorneys request bail be set, particularly when they know that bail is unaffordable, they demonstrate a callous disregard for human life and make clear that you are willing to subject presumptively innocent people to torture. So uh, Brad Landers is a citywide, won the citywide race for a controller. Uh, that is a stepping stone to higher office. He is representing people who are insisting that people sent to jail for violent crimes uh, not be sent to jail for violent crimes uh, or be released because it, it, jail is worse than them committing violent crimes against others. Uh, there is a there is a fifty year novel in this horrible story about deinstitutionalization, about the role of our mental health system in dealing with um, uh, adult schizophrenics uh, and about 
New York City crime and liberal attitudes toward crime. Um, any thoughts? This is <clears throat> this came up. Uh, I don't remember how many months ago at this point, probably six months ago or so, when uh, an Asian woman was attacked on the streets of Midtown by a guy who was caught on uh, surveillance video, as so many attacks are now. And it turned out that guy was let out after killing his mother. Um, so the 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 state of things now, and I and I live in in Midtown and the office, the commentary office is in Midtown. So a good deal of my life is spent walking uh, up and down and across those streets. Is that yeah, sure, you know it's New York and there's always people talking to themselves and you know oh isn't that part of the charm of the city? But uh, no, it's not, especially because these days you don't know if that is uh, uh, just a nice guy with some problems or someone who was just let out for killing someone who's going to push you into a train or stab you or attack you. And that is that is the reality right now. And this, by the way, this gets back to our point about um, uh, how uh, the, this idea among uh, liberals and the left that we should all be policing each other and uh, obeying all sorts of... Uh, restrictions and and curbs on our behavior but those who pose the greatest threat to us um should be eased up on uh and and that's uh, that's gets very complicated of course when we're talking about mental illness and i and you know i'm i'm with you on the the failings of um uh the the, the system uh in terms of how it has um treated uh those who actually need help um I keep mentioning the 1970s and Democrats and Republicans on the crime and all of that. <clears throat> and having grown up in New York City in the 1970s and living very close to where I lived when I was a kid in the 1970s, I was asked recently by a, by a younger a relative by marriage who, um, who also grew up in the same neighborhood and has kids in the same neighborhood now, uh, whether it's, you know, what it's like now compared to what it was like then. And it's an interesting comparison because New York City was unambiguously far less safe in the in the 1970s than it is now, even after the crime surges of the last year. And the effect of living in a city like that was that you lived in a constant state of menace. So that uh, even though, like, I, you weren't likely to have someone push you into a subway train you were nonetheless, what you were afraid of was being mugged. You were afraid of being robbed. You were afraid of a kind of a racially tinged confrontation with, uh, with a criminal, uh, if you were white particularly, but also if you were Hispanic and the criminal were black or if you were black and the criminal were Hispanic, it sort of didn't, didn't really matter. Menace was the overwhelming feeling. You were never really safe anywhere that you went. And it's different now, and I suppose it's better, but it's different because this is more like jump scare horror movie stuff in which you're walking along feeling perfectly safe and then you hear, oh, someone just pushed somebody onto a subway platform or in the path of a subway train right where you were standing 15 minutes earlier. The effect is not to make you think... I can't walk down the streets safely because anybody might have a gun or might push me against the wall to rob from me. It is that a demonic, something sort of demonic might happen at any turn. You're walking down a block. 
uh, a person that we now describe as homeless, but we don't know if they're homeless. We just mean that they're crazy, walks next to you and pushes you into a building or, or, or punches you from behind your head or something like that. And there are dozens of these incidents every day. And granted, there are millions of people on the streets. So the possibility that you will be one of these victims is much lower than it was in the 1970s when there was a lot of hand-on-hand street crime and muggings and things like that. But it doesn't feel better to live in a place where you don't know if at any moment somebody is going to come up from behind you and push you into a subway train. These are two different feelings. Uh, and arguably, the latter is worse than the former because of the unpredictability aspect, because it comes out of nowhere, because and because it comes out of nowhere, unlike what people learned on the streets of dangerous cities in the 70s and 80s, you don't have much in the way of mitigation strategies. Like when it was really unsafe at night, or you felt unsafe at night, for example, you would walk in the middle of the street not on the sidewalk. That was one you did. You avoided blocks that had lots of little doorways where there were no doormen. Uh, or if you did that, you walked in the middle of the street and you let the, you know, you stood aside when the cars passed and you kept walking like that. There were things, there were mitigation strategies. You can't have a mitigation strategy against a surprise attack. That is the feeling now. Uh, I just want to say there's a, there's still a little bit of the racially tinged menace uh, out there too. I, I, I've, I've been, I've been harassed a few times as, as a white guy uh, over, the, over the past two years uh, on the street. Not, not seriously, but, you know. Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm not yeah. saying, I'm not yeah. saying, I'm saying that, that that was a kind of, it was just, a, it, was a, it was an everyday element of life. It was a constant feeling of a lack of safety, which I still say is worse than now. Yeah. But but you but there's been an one of the reasons why the messaging of the of of officials on the left about crime is so bizarre and and unhelpful is that people actually have thankfully been able to enjoy an expectation of safety. You I, I mean those of us who raised our kids in safer cities, it's hard to explain now to kids. Well, actually, here's some here are the mitigation strategies now that crime is going up that I want you to follow. They think it's an overreaction, but it, the experience we, we've actually had this period of time where where the crime rates were lower and there's again they're still lower now even with the spike than they were uh before but it's but the fact that the messaging of of public officials is to say well that concern that feeling of safety being taken away from law-abiding citizens isn't what we should be worried about we should be worried about whether or not we're treating the criminals uh in a good way like whether they're getting all the support they need what about your citizens your citizens have had something that is your job to maintain taken away from them little by little. What are you doing about it? And we have seen in the first real electoral challenge of this new era, which was the New York City, the primary for the New York City mayor's race, the guy who sounded the toughest on crime was the one who won the race going away uh, against progressive prosecutor types and people who supported the idea that the problem was policing and not, and not, uh, law and you know was was dealing law enforcement as bad guys and not good guys. Now I'm not saying that Eric Adams means it or that it's a very complicated issue, but in 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 large bore, uh, he ran as a public safety person and won in the Democratic primary. These people are challenging and these people are going to engender an awakening within their own coalition 
about whether or not it is safe to be part of that coalition. And, you know, just as we're seeing certain types of ideological civil wars breaking out on Capitol Hill over things like spending and all of that, uh, our political system is responsive. It's not that, you know, it's not that Republicans are going to rise up in these places and take out Democrats. That's unlikely to happen in these ultra blue places. But the idea that there is a kind of there's going to be a PC rule about how to deal with crime when, of course, as is always the case, the greatest danger to people from crime is the poor. The poor are the ones who are disproportionately affected by crime, not the wealthy and well-to-do who have who do have mitigation strategies like, you know, how you avoid getting attacked on the subway. You never go on the subway. How do you never go on the subway? You take taxis and Ubers. How do you do that? You have enough money to take taxis and Ubers. A lot of people don't have enough money and can't do that. So uh, they are, you know, they, they, they have gone into this in a kind of, uh, again, let's use the word foolish or fool's paradise of, We've lived with low crime for so long. Obviously, the problem is the cops. And now we're going to see what happens when people start feeling unsafe again. Because that is the thing. That is the number one thing that people care about. And it is the number one thing that destroyed the Democratic Party as a national force for 20 years. It it didn't destroy it. I mean, it wasn't destroyed as a national. That's an overstatement. but, But essentially gave rise to the parody of the parties nationally, which is where we sort of started a lot of this conversation. And so I think we'll end it here. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Bodhoritz. Keep the candle burning.